Welcome to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film Jaws, minute by minute or thereabouts. I'm Sarah Buddery. And I'm MJ Smith, and it's just us this week, um, so we'll get right into this week's scene. The timestamp for this week's scene is 1 hour, 7 minutes, and 11 seconds through 1 hour, 9 minutes, and 10 seconds. So just under the 2 minute mark by 1 second. 1 minute, 59 seconds is this scene. <laughs> Um, in this scene, we are still in Hooper's, nope, Quint's, um, <laughs> we're still in Quint's little shack, and um, now it's time for him to interact with Hooper. So this is on the heels of him saying that uh, you can't find anyone good under the age of 60, <clears throat> and uh, that is addressed directly to Hooper, mm-hmm. and uh, Quint climbs some stairs and kind of orders, starts bossing Hooper around, Hooper... Uh, and basically telling him that he's not going to be able to to go on the the trip. I almost said the cruise, which is an overstatement. Um, <laughs> and Hooper kind of sticks up for himself and defends himself. And Quint kind of puts him to the test of, of tying a, a knot of some kind. And then he uh, he basically tells him he'll let him come. But he's, he thinks that he's going to be dead weight. Um, mm. And he, he also goes after hooper's affluence um in a really insulting way so that's kind of the scene is just this this immediate animosity between quint and and hooper um Mm. so yeah that's that's it it's this this boiling conflict pun not intended because of the shark the shark jaws (laughs) that are boiling um with them but sarah what did you notice uh in this scene Mm, yeah things are about to get spicy and i (laughs) i really love the the sort of you know this i mean just so happens this is how i've i've broken down the scenes to talk about but how last week it was sort of when we first uh were in quint's cabin and it was a lot of interaction between quint and and brody and brody is still there obviously and and says uh some things but this is this scene is really about the interaction between Quint and and Hooper this time around and a very different way that they that they interact Quint talks to Hooper in a very very different way and uh some very very interesting things i had to do a bit of googling this <laughs> this week just because <laughs> there's some like boating terminology and some uh, sort of abbreviations and things that were that were mentioned so this is like the most research sort of aside from watching the scene that I've had to do this week. Um, but one of the the first things that, that struck me is right at the beginning of this scene, I had to, did some, uh, did some number crunching. So, <laughs> um, Quint says, uh, you can't get a good man these days under 60. And, and as you mentioned, he is pretty much directly, indirectly addressing Hooper as, as he says that he is walking right past him as he says it. So it's very, 
clear who that is uh who that is aimed at and i was like uh right after that i think um he says that um they've all been gone at least 35 years uh so i was like okay the we established that jaws is set in 1974 obviously the film came out in 75 but it's it's set in 1974 so i i did 1974 take away 35 and uh the year that you get there is 1939 uh which is Mm. the year world war ii started Yep. So this sort of ties into something that you mentioned in last week's episode, I think, about this survivor's guilt and how even though we don't find out, you know, Quint's reason for his his Quintness uh, until much, much later in the film with the Indianapolis speech, there's some little kind of subtle breadcrumbs just being just being dropped here. I mean, it's it's a very quick line and unless you're sort of looking at it in the insane level of detail we are i don't think you're going to be sort of crunching those numbers in your head as you're watching this film in the cinema but um yeah i i uh sat sat and worked that out and was like well you know i wonder if (laughs) if that is a significant if it ends up as a significant year and was uh happy to find that it was uh i wondered if it would be the year that the indianapolis thing happened like 1974 Mm. takeaway the the 35 years but no it was 19 1939 so definitely this sense of um some survivor's guilt and the impact that the war would have had on quint as well which is not something that really gets unpacked until a lot later but it's also this quint's sort of saying that you can't get a, a a good man these days under under 60 they've all they've all been gone at least 35 years it's this sort of um implication that he perhaps sees himself as like you know the last uh the last one of these like good old boys who's who's left really i mean he's got his his first mate and sort of people that he um seems he doesn't trust that many people just the way he sort of lives his life is quite sort of on the on the outskirts of town and as a bit of a a bit of a lone wolf but yeah this this idea that that how he sees himself um is sort of subtly mentioned in in the way that he is also like jabbing at hooper as well which i just thought was quite interesting yeah he uh this scene is so great um (laughs) so something i noticed actually while you were talking i did some math of my own Mm -hmm. um just kind of looking at our our document where we have um the timestamps set up this scene, much like the film, is divided directly in half mm-hmm, mm-hmm. between uh, Hooper and Quint and Brody and Quint. So last week we talked about the Brody and Quint half, but each section is one minute and 59 seconds. Ooh, well done me. <laughs> but it's crazy that it's divided that perfectly uh, because you just, very, you, very well. you just separated it. <laughs> at a natural point where you would separate it. So we got an episode out of the Brody half and an episode out of the Hooper half. But it's just, it's so Mm -hmm. like, I love how meticulous that is. Like, I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but it like, it's sort of a microcosm of the whole film at that point, right? Because you have the three mains interacting with each other, but you get these one-on-one interactions with Quint, who's the newest member, right? So he's going to get the most screen time. He's, you know, he's the focus of the entire three minutes and 18 seconds. Mm-hmm. But 
uh, it's divided perfectly in half for that. And uh, I, that's so cool. I think that's so great. Um, it, it's it, to, like, I, I feel like it has to be on purpose, that, that <laughs> runtime to me. Maybe not the amount of time of three minutes and 18 seconds, but just it, they were like, it has to have the same amount of interactive screen time mm. um, between the, the, the two other leads that we've had until this point. Mm. It, I guess it just sort of adds to that what we were saying last week as well mm-hmm. in that it's really hard in this film to to pick out a lead like when you're sort of looking at it in the the Oscars sense you know who would be in the supporting category and who would be in the leading car- uh, category it's it seems like this where there is sort of you know like you said Quint the gets the most time that's because we've seen the least of him so far um but I reckon I mean I'm I say I'm not about to sit and work this out, but we are, you know, <laughs> going through this film minute by minute. Like how how it works out in terms of like screen time, like who which of the characters has has the most. I mean, I would I would probably be willing to bet that Brody has the most screen time just because we we start and yeah. end the film uh the film with him and he's pretty much our like constant throughout. There's there's rarely a scene that doesn't involve him. Um so he probably does uh, have the most, but between between yeah. Hooper and Quinn, I reckon it's probably pretty equal. Um, because the whole time, you know, Hooper is is in the cage, and when they sort of think that that he is gone later, you know, it is just Brody and 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 Quint. So you know, there is a time when when Hooper isn't there, and there's you know scenes between Brody and Hooper when Quint isn't there but I just I think it's interesting you know what you sort of worked out just there that this scene that we're talking about today and last week's scene as well is you know how equal it is in terms of you know the the half of the scene being the Brody and and Quint moment and then this half being the Hooper and Quint moment I think is is fascinating really and just sort of adds to that idea that you know these these characters they it is hard to separate them and and particularly as the film goes on it's it gets even harder to sort of pick out who is you know who is the one holding the power who is the one who's in charge because it sort of changes and um you know moves moves along as the as the film moves on you know Brody has a lot of the power early on in the film and then sort of has to hand that over to Quint and then as they learn to trust each other it sort of becomes a a lot more equal so yeah it's a it's an interesting thing to to think about really and I'd not given that too much thought before but there's some great stuff in this scene as well with um some things that we've spoken about previously with sort of uh forcing perspective and interesting camera angles um and stuff like that as well i really love that shot of quint sort of high up in the in the cabin and the other two down below um it just makes him look like this towering intimidating presence and it it forces brody and hooper to look up to him you know physically because he is higher up than them and also like I am better than you like look up to me and listen to what I'm saying it's you're getting that impression impression as well so it's him asserting his dominance and we've seen 
um similar kind of shots and, and we sort of picked them out at the time with conversations between Brody and Larry mm-hmm. and Hooper when they're in front of the billboard and that sort of like weird low angle that they that they use then um and we've spoken as well about the sort of the power position you know whoever it is that's that's on the right hand side seems to be the person who has the has the power but that seems to be changing a, a little bit now because the for a scene that takes place in one set <laughs> there is a lot of movement there is a lot of um pretty dynamic camera movements and the characters moving around even if they're if even if they're not moving that much you're getting a sense of really seeing more of this cabin and seeing these characters kind of like circling around Mm. each other and and that predator prey thing like certainly comes back uh in in this scene but yeah some really great stuff here in the sort of um posturing between the characters and this asserting of dominance that is so important for the rest of the film yeah i was thinking about that power position stuff too it seems like with the exception of the dinner scene the rule does not apply to hooper um (laughs) so you know when when uh when he's on the right usually He's almost fighting for the power in the scene because Quint's on the left-hand side of the shot a lot. They're circling around each other, but Quint almost always ends up on the left. And then Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it in regards to their interaction with the mayor. The mayor actually still has power in that scene. Like his decision to not close Mm. down the beaches is still what goes. And they put Hooper on the right. He's obviously the one arguing the logic but he's also losing his shit because he's just like can't with the mayor anymore <laughs> and so he's sort of lost the power in by by letting like flying off the handle like that but he's on the right hand side of that um mm. that interaction so with hooper i think because he's the outsider they put him in the power position but then we see the people who are like even brody like larry's not as forceful with brody <clears throat> as he is with hooper because mm. You know, he's not an Islander, but he's still a citizen of Amity. So Larry's just inherently going to, inherently going to trust him more uh, by the fact that he lives on the island. And then same with Quint. Like, Quint, you know, is an outsider within the island, but he's still a resident of the island. So people just kind of default to trusting him more. Um, Mm. than they do Hooper. So putting Hooper in the power position, but then making him the outsider that's having to kind of fight for it is actually like a really interesting sort of subtle breaking of the rules uh, that I just kind of realized happens kind of a lot to him. (laughs) Yeah, and Hooper is really, really trying in this scene. Bless (laughs) his heart. I... He is trying so hard to to get Quint on his side. And what I've, like, only on this watch, and I, I watched this scene a few times um, earlier in preparation for this, is it's so interesting to me that Hooper goes in with the, the boating credentials um, mm-hmm. and not the <clears throat> fact that he is a literal shark expert. Like, it's, it's Brody that mentions, you know and it's sort of shouted over that he's from the oceanographic institute and it's hooper he's a i mean he's a smart guy we we've established this he knows what he is doing when it comes to sharks but also he's he's 
not as uh, sort of uncomfortable in these kind of situations as as perhaps we thought he he might be like he knows that you know it's it's quint's boat that they're going to be going out on you know quint is by default the captain if it's if it's his boat that they're taking out there so hooper is trying to get quint on side by like going in with the the boating credentials but quint just absolutely rinses him for, for it um where this is one of my first things i had to i had to google so i think he says that he's uh he's crewed two trans packs or something and i was Three. like i don't know what that is um but it's the trans pacific yacht race mm-hmm. um and then he mentions uh, america's cup trial as well um i love quince deliberate mishearing of trans packs he's like transplants which <laughs> <laughs> just makes me laugh every time um, but yeah, Hooper, Hooper is clearly trying to appeal to the thing that he thinks Quint is going to be receptive to, but I just think this is a, this is a losing battle for our, for our dear Hooper, whatever he would have thrown at Quint, Quint was going to find something to, to bat him down with. Uh, it really just isn't going well for him at all, but yeah the the shark is 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 mentioned and we get this this difference in the language that they use as well obviously hooper referring to it as a a great white and quint calls it a a porker which is a another great line uh, (laughs) from from quint um and they they're all you know they are a a perfect pairing really because they have skills that complement each other and and one of the the things that quince says right at the end about hooper which initially seems like insulting actually has like a weird you know hidden compliment in there somewhere and we'll we'll get onto that in a little bit maybe but yeah just this um oh it's just i'm just hooper is trying so hard i just i really feel for him in this, in well, this and so, <laughs> something i've noticed that i don't think i've ever like cognitized before is brody's kind of treating him like a child in this scene too brody doesn't get a lot of interaction here but he hands mm. him the the moonshine and he goes don't drink that and <laughs> it's almost like and he's he trying it. to yeah so it's almost <laughs> like he's trying to parent hooper through this interaction where he's just like Look, Quinn's kind of a tough guy. I know you're kind of a soft boy. Let me like, let mm. me kind of handle this. And then Hooper has to be like, I'm still a fucking grown up, man. Like <laughs> he he has to fight kind of against Brody too, which is why he drinks it. And I mm. <clears throat> I, I just rewound it to see if I imagined this because I and I did um, because Hooper's the character I identify probably the most in Jaws, which is especially if someone like. If I feel like someone's underestimating me, like the the part of me that listened to just too much punk rock in high school kicks in and <laughs> it's just like this total screw you attitude. So mm-hmm. uh, to me, he drinks the rest of the shot and just gives Brody this like screw you look. He doesn't do that. I added that because that's what I would do. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is funny that he just, he downs it and he downs it a lot faster and easier than Brody did like Brody kind of mm-hmm. meticulously sips it and is like oh I'm not touching this and then Hooper just like powers through it like he coughs a little bit um mm. but he also does this ventriloquism act because the ADR is a little weird where he says Quinn's name as he's drinking the the shot which I thought was funny mm. but yeah I thought it was interesting that 
he like you said he brings up the boating thing above the the sharking thing and i think he has realized um because i feel like hooper's had to deal with someone who's kind of like quint might be the most extreme example of this but even like ben gardner um we see his first interaction with him like hello back uh you know just kind of like talking down to him and i think he kind of because he spent enough time in these areas with these sort of salty local fish fishermen that Mm. he he kind of feels like he knows how to handle them he goes to the boating credentials first and you know you immediately you when you look up transpac which i also had to do and find out it was the trans trans american or trans pacific yacht race uh Mm. it's you hear the words yacht race and you kind of balk at it at first where you're like, well, is yachts like this isn't, you know, these <laughs> sort of, you know, old school fisher vessels that these guys are using. But then you think about it, too, and you're competing in an athletic something. Right. So you have to be able to, mm. like, adjust on the fly as things you know you're you're, you are battling nature in that you know you have to work with the wind or against the wind and you have to adjust all these things on the boat rapidly because you are doing it against other people and you're trying to win you're doing it in a competition so he's he's approaching it by saying like he's not saying like oh hey the you know i'm this great yachtsman but he's saying like i know how to account for you know, minute changes in wind and ocean conditions and weather conditions on the open sea for long periods of time. Because I, once again, just looking it up, it's a 2,225 nautical mile race. Mm. I don't know the difference between normal miles and nautical miles as I am not a fisherman, but I know 2,225 land miles are kind of a lot, so I assume nautical ones are also kind of a lot. So he's competed Mm. three times in these super intense, you know, boating competitions, having to adjust for these things on the fly. And so that's that's not nothing when it comes to, you know, I think, seamanship skills. Mm. Um, And Quint just kind of steamrolls over it by calling it like pleasure boating and day day sailing. Yeah, it's it, just sort of looking at the the script again and sort of when um, Brody sort of tries to introduce Hooper he, to Quint, he's like, you know, this is this is Matt Hooper. And Quint says, I know who he is. So he Quint maybe sort of knows, you know, this is this guy from the, the fancy institute on on the mainland or something. Um, and perhaps, you know, doesn't doesn't know about his sort of sailing credentials or his his boat credentials so hooper is really trying to prove himself here i mean he's he's proven himself to brody that he knows what he is talking about when it comes to sharks um it's suggested or implied i guess that quinn at least sort of has uh some knowledge of of who hooper is um they've not had an interaction prior to this point but um you know it's a small island these these things travel around and you know quint even if he's on the on the outskirts and in his little cabin um he'll have probably heard about this sort of uh you know city boy who's who's come along as the the expert on the shark so perhaps he doesn't need to sort of know about you know what an expert he is 
he is in sharks or you know fishing or anything that's very much quint's area of expertise so uh hooper is is sort of trying to to prove his worth and sort of uh explain or or tell quint you know that that he is up to the job um and like you said yeah i i until i'd done some googling i hadn't really sort of thought about the things that that hooper is mentioning as as being you know that that difficult because like you you know you hear yacht and you're like oh yeah it's just you know a bunch of millionaires like uh with a you know a a huge crew or something that are you know lying on this mega yacht uh having caviar and champagne or whatever it was quint was demanding last week um but you know it's it's not it's it's not that it is it is hard work it's it's competitive it's you are against the elements and yes the the boats might be very different to the sort of fishing vessels that that quint is used to but it's hooper is not is not a nobody and even though he does get (laughs) walked over uh quite a bit by by quint in this scene he really tries to hold he really tries to hold his own and i super appreciate that about hooper i mean i i love that bit when (laughs) quint uh very forcefully uh throws that bag um at hooper um and sort of hooper takes it for a minute and then and then throws it down as as well and you know then puts his sort of hands on his hips as well as a as a you know trying to look like you know i'm i'm a man who means business as well he ties that that rope uh, perfectly the you know the assignment that quint gives him to sort of tie a tie a sheep shank um and hooper hooper does it straight away even sort of you know criticizes quint whilst he's doing it he's you know you didn't tell me how short you <laughs> how short you wanted it but he he just does it anyway and, and throws it at him and that bit when because quint goes over to like the pots doesn't he the, yeah. the thing that's like brewing in the background um again to to check on it and hooper is sort of in the foreground and and tying this knot and he throws it at him but quint doesn't even like break gaze like it's so intense the way he like moves back across the room and you get that like flash of those like blue eyes again and i mean the first thing i like write down in my notes is like predator prey dynamic like completely uh, something we've spoken about frequently uh before and we've sort of seen it with different characters as well and different moments in the film and it's i guess i'd never really thought about how often that that comes up and how we we have this idea of like a predator and a prey in so many of the scenes in this film and the shark is nowhere to be seen but yet we still have that that idea and that is you know anyone who is like uh jaws is just a shark film i will be like absolutely not and here is my 20,000 reasons why because you have moments like this that is sort of those taking that idea of yes you know the shark in the film is is the predator and the the people who are being attacked you know they are they are the prey or whatever but you get that idea coming up in so many other moments that it's it, it's an idea that is just much bigger than you know the shark itself um and yeah i it's just such the the way he just like because the rope is sort of like thrown across his face as well and the way he just sort of like casts it off but doesn't it doesn't ever like look away from from hooper it's so intense it's so well done and there you sort of like i found myself um 
you know, taking like a sharp breath when he sort of like grabs his hands because you're like, I don't know what he's about to do to, to <laughs> Hooper. Like, obviously we know because we've seen the film before, but like, is he about to like, you know, put his like hands to his throat or something or, you know, do something like really aggressive because he really grabs him with like quite some force. And the way we've just seen him look at him from across the room as well, it's like, well, we don't know what he's, you know, what he's about to do. And it's, it's clear that, you know, <laughs> Like I said, right at the top, this is about to get very spicy indeed when we uh, when we head out onto the Orca because it's from the bat these two have there's animosity, clear yeah. animosity between between these two, and I mean Brody literally positions himself between the two of them at one point when he's uh, sort of saying to Quint, you know, you're not going to do this on the <laughs> on the boat, are you? And Quint just looks at him like maybe. <laughs> I love that look he gives him because to me, I don't read it as maybe I read it as like, yeah, I am. (laughs) I absolutely am going to do this on the boat. I will almost exclusively do this on the boat as a matter of fact. Yeah, he looks so mischievous in that moment as well. And how like Robert Shaw can go from that insane like intensity of just like, eyeballing Hooper from across the room to then just having this like real kind of like cheeky glint in his eye where you're like this is exactly what he is about to do he looks so sheepish looks real pleased with himself it's a oh it's such a great moment (laughs) yeah he's just like the left side of his face just comes way up and uh, so it is like his eyebrows and he's just like, well, you got me there. I'm definitely doing this on the ship. It's wonderful. It's a, it's like an exercise of like, well, I did learn in school that if I can't say something nice, I better not say anything at all. And uh, <laughs> I also, I yeah. cannot tell a lie, so I'm not going to say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you, you got me. Yep. <laughs> I really like that uh, Quint locks into the thing that it's clear Hooper is most like insecure about, which is the fact that he comes from money. Like I know he kind of jokes about it with Brody a little bit, but here he gets really defensive, like more defensive than he has the entire interaction about mm-hmm. it. It reminds me of that John Mulaney bit where he talks about how 13-year-olds are the meanest people on the planet because they will immediately figure out the thing that like you're most insecure about. And uh he <laughs> his joke says that uh uh that you know a group of 13-year-olds once said like uh look at that high-waisted man he has feminine hips and he's like that's a thing I'm sensitive about. And that's exactly <laughs> what I hear Hooper doing when he says, "All right, I don't need this working class hero crap." Where he, where he tells him he's been count he's got city hands because he's got he's been busy counting money all his life. He, I just hear him going like, "That's a thing I'm sensitive about." <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if we've had uh, a, a a curse from a curse word from Hooper before, but when he sort of is like, you know, I don't need this 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 working class hero crap. I mean, he's really like calling Quinn out as well. And we mm-hmm. we mentioned last week, didn't we, about like um how you know obvious it is that that Quint is you know is from a working class background and and is you know certainly doesn't come from money and Hooper is like you know the complete absolute opposite end yeah. of the the scale to that and 
but but Hooper is not, you know, yeah, he he. I do you know what? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like working this out in my head because you know what you just said. I've never really thought about it in that way before because we because Hooper sort of jokingly, you know, when Brody's like, you know, you're rich, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's a it's a very very different interaction. You know, there's there's something perhaps it's because you know Brody is you know he's not working class he's not as rich as Hooper as as we established he's probably somewhere in the middle but yeah. i don't know their their relationship is very very different but i think because of the the way this conversation has gone so far and the fact that this is the thing that Quint is choosing to sort of pick on on Hooper for he reacts in a very very different way to the way that he reacted um, to to Brody when sort of talking about about money and about his background, and I just think that's that's really interesting. I've not really thought about that before. That actually, you know, it's maybe this is something that has been has been used against him, used against him before, or he's he's dealt with. Actually, you mentioned Ben Gardner earlier, right? And their interaction. Um, our, our lovely little Hooper has not had a, a good run of uh, interactions with fishermen on Amity. Um, ben Gardner was sort of like, you know, sizing him up as as mm-hmm. he got off his boat. Uh, he then tries to tell the, the chump fishermen, uh, you know, that they're overloading the boat and they, you know, tell him to, you know, take a long walk off a short pier effectively. <laughs> um, and now this. <laughs> so it's almost like this is the the straw that broke the uh, the Hooper's back. Um, he's he's had it at this point with these these fishermen sort of like yeah. making judgments about him and and talking to him in a certain way that it's yeah he he doesn't you know have to defend himself he's he's very good at what he does that's why he uses these sort of boating credentials you know he he can do it and he's very very capable and he's very very smart but he constantly feels like he has to defend himself or stand up for himself against people like this. So this isn't this is not the first time an interaction like this has happened with Hooper, I feel. Um yeah, but there also could be an inherent like classism in that too of mm. like mm-hmm. Hooper like Hooper may not have the best intentions when he talks that cuz he's not talking to Brody like this. This is the first time he's talked to anyone like this. Yeah. And it like it kind of feels like he feels like he can get away with it and maybe part of it is like but Quint's not being the nicest guy to him either. So he's, you know, there is certainly an aspect of him defending himself. But mm. he's, you know, he's gotten short tem- short tempered with, well, the mayor. But the mm. mayor, like, really pushes him in <laughs> the field he's the biggest expert in. Like, the, the, the shark, like, just straight up denying the shark science at play here. And that sets him off. So there is precedent that... Hooper has a little bit of of a short fuse um, when pushed on the things he knows about. Um, But I think you could also argue that one of the reasons he feels like that is because, granted, in the the case with Larry, Larry doesn't know what he's talking about. But uh, so that, that can be frustrating. But here... They're clearly evenly matched, right? Like they, they clearly have their own set of strengths and weaknesses that they bring to mm. the table. And um, they reconcile those differences earlier, or earlier, later, sorry. They reconcile those differences <laughs> later in the film. And I think what's interesting about that is 
the way they go about it hmm. is Hooper inadvertently touches on the thing that Quint is the most insecure about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that, like, the, the one of the big things in the movie, especially in this back half, is all three of these guys dealing with their insecurities, right? Like, Hooper dealing with the the the, you know, sort of being written off by working class people and maybe his own writing off of working class people uh, because mm-hmm. of his affluent background. Um, and then Quint working through sort of the trauma and like, you know, the, the last, the, the reason he doesn't want to work with a big crew is because the last time he probably did that, it was on the Indianapolis and, you know, kind of resolving that PTSD and those trust issues and then Brody in the water, right? Like Mm -hmm. Brody's just like immediately uncomfortable, um, of, of, of the, the, the water. So this this next half of the movie is really kind of these guys processing those insecurities and um, things that that kind of hold them back a little bit. Mm. What a, what a film, honestly. <laughs> it's it's uh, there's uh, there's so much to unpack, like in in this scene and and last week's scene. I think if you if you wanted to sort of like explain like the the back half of this this film and why it is so interesting you know the the dynamic of those three on the boat i mean we see everything or at least hints of everything in these in these two scenes and the one we talked about last week and the one we're talking about this week and honestly my mind is still blown by the fact that they're like the same length (laughs) i can't recover from that i can't it's like I, I'm, you know, it's just a happy coincidence the way that it's worked out in terms of the the segments that I've I've broken this down into. But yeah, we get such a strong sense in in last week's scene and in this week's scene about like how the rest of the film is gonna play out. And yes, we see that relationship change um, and develop across the film. But you know, this this idea of them dealing with their with their insecurities, we're we're certainly seeing that you know even just hints of it you know in Quint's case it's very subtle hints at it um you know what what he went through and you know it's like I mentioned at the top that when you do the maths you know he's he's talking about that you know uh all the all the good ones uh you know have been gone at least 35 years implying that all all the good ones died in in the war and that's something that we see him him process um not just the sort of the trauma of the Indianapolis event, but perhaps the the trauma and survivor's guilt of, of you know, being like the last one of those guys left uh, and, you know, having lost so many of, of his friends and, and colleagues and um and and that's from from the war and yeah, just such such a great scene. I mean, I know this is just this is me repeating myself every week and just being like pretty pretty good film, but pretty good movie. it's yeah pretty pretty good (laughs) oh i was gonna say i think the moral of the story is that men will literally go hunt down a great white shark instead of go to therapy (laughs) sorry that is just like the perfect description (laughs) Uh (laughs) that's the whole movie (laughs) oh that really that really got me that's yeah it's so it's it's so true and i just (laughs) (laughs) i 
I, I just, I honestly, I'm going to sound like a broken record at this point, but just like, oh, please, if if you think Jaws is like just a shark movie, or to to call Jaws just a shark movie, it does such a disservice to this film because, you know, I've this point like even though the shark is like mentioned in this scene and we've spoken about you know this this predator prey thing and the they're referred to in this scene multiple times you know great white porkers mr whitey like however many like (laughs) names you want to give to this shark in watching scenes like this i almost forget that the shark is even a factor in this because i am just so focused on these characters and the way they interact with each other and that is that is jaws for me like that is the the best thing about jaws is is these characters and it's seeing you know them them processing the the things that that they have experienced in the past and how this sort of this dealing with the shark changes them as well and there's just oh i mean we've got a we've got so much good stuff to come in the in the back half of this film and I can't wait to sort of see like how, you know, some of these things that we're talking about now, like how they play out across the rest of the film. But it's just, I, yeah, please, if you think Jaws is just a shark film, please at me. I would really like to have that discussion with you about why you're wrong. (laughs) Two things. One, I pictured the shark kind of sitting outside the orca, uh, listening to the Indianapolis speech and being like, oh, wow, these guys have some problems. Anyway, I'm hungry. Um... Two. <laughs> I feel like the dumbest person in the world because I just now realized that Mr. Whitey is a great white shark. <laughs> Every time I've watched this movie, I've gone, what? I... T- <laughs> I thought here we go. <laughs> Mr. Whitey was like a generic name for like a a a, a doxman who has it out for you when you bring in your your haul of fish like <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but that's really funny. <laughs> you you said that they are referred to as like so many different things like porkers and mr whitey and like my brain left my body like i like (laughs) i went to another planet Mm -hmm. i was like i straight up was like oh my god why are you so stupid (laughs) like (laughs) i mean the line the i've just got the scripts in front of me now it's just like Along comes Mr. Whitey. By the time he's finished with that net, it looks like a kiddie's scissor class has cut it up for a paper doll. No, I understand. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm, I'm not making a... I'm not trying to make this worse, but... Um... I So I always <laughs> thought it was like talking about how Hooper would just replace the net because he, ha- he just throws money at problems. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like... I, to me, I thought he was like, you've never had to deal with some asshole who ruins your equipment because he doesn't like you, even though you you know, you know, have this $5,000 net and you bring in $2,000 worth of fish that's not going to cover the cost of a new net. And mm-hmm. then this jerk who runs the docks because he has it out for you ruins your net and like effectively leaves you without a job, which, <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> in your, so in, in your canon... 
Mr. Whitey is the this uh let's let's put a face to him. He's that uh that guy who walks out of the <laughs> Yes, the cornflakes the, guy. Yeah, with the with the cereal. Uh-huh. That's Mr. Whitey yeah. and sometimes he just walks around with like a a pair of scissors or some kind of, you know, hacking shears or something and just uh just cuts up people's nets. Uh is it is this the canon we're creating? Yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it is. That is silly. And also, I want to see that film. <laughs> I, like, I just, I literally just thought Mr. Whitey was, like, some guy that Quint has had to deal with in his fisherman's career that was just, mm. like, kind of a prick to Quint and, like, had it out specifically for him and, like, ruined his haul one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, nope. like because like Um, and even part of me was like is he doing like a race thing like (laughs) i i I don't i don't know what else (laughs) like watching it no no bullshit watching it for this show i was like oh mr whitey i don't think i've ever locked into the fact that he calls him mr whitey i was like is he doing like a is Quint like a lot more woke than I thought he was? Like, is is he talking about like how like you know lower lower class white people and like black people have kind of the, like they the, the the thumb of whitey is on the on on them all? Like, I legit thought it was like nineteen seventies slang for like the man or like what like whitey like like white like white people <laughs> like. Yeah, that seeing it as like I could see how you could see it as like you know the the man you know generic generic man who comes along and and ruins things for everyone because you know they're they're so focused on money and not focused on the like the real hard work and that sort mm-hmm. of thing I, okay that that makes sense to me but i've never not seen i've never not seen it as the shark well you know why is <laughs> because it's absolutely the shark it's <laughs> yeah yeah I, <laughs> I, my, my brain is just thinking of like all of the possible Mr. Whitey like spinoff ideas now, and I'm, I want to see all of them. <laughs> I can't believe I, I've been watching this movie for like pushing two decades, and <laughs> nope. I uh, <laughs> I had a, a a maybe a fairly smart observation that I can uh, that I can round us off with unless you uh, unless you had anything anything else or is this uh, is this derailed you now? Yeah, no, MJ being a dipshit about what a slang for a great white shark is and reading like a super deep class commentary race commentary into it uh, is is about all I have for the rest of the episode. I think. Look, every everyone can see things in uh, in different ways and find their own meaning in things. So I fully support <clears throat> you in this uh, in this interpretation of Mr. Whitey. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. The thing that I I I think I vaguely mentioned it earlier, but um, right at the end of uh, of this scene, um, Quint refers to hooper as uh as ballast and the way that he says it as well he's like take him for ballast chief and he's you know 
a lot more deadpan than than that but it's basically considering the conversation that has just preceded it as well you know um he is very anti hooper being there hooper is very riled up uh with with what quint has has said to him um and the way that quint delivers that line is you know just sort of you know he's he's not important but yeah we'll we'll take him i didn't really know what ballast meant you know when you hear one of those words like thrown oh. around and you're like oh yeah i i know what that is mm-hmm. um and then i was like let me get like the actual definition of of this just to see if it sheds any light or you know gives me something else other than just what i think it is mm-hmm. what i sort of like thought was like oh it's you know it's the the thing that you don't really need but it helps it does something on on the boat or you know has has a use but is not you know um not i don't know that my my brain didn't really know exactly what it was um but i so the definition that i got um is ballast is material that is used to provide stability to a vehicle or structure um and then later in the definition it sort of says like water should move in and out from the ballast tank to balance the ship um Mm -hmm. and i've just i've highlighted balance and stability in that definition um because whilst it is on the one hand quint sort of being like you know yell you know yell taken sort of thing he he's not of you know particular use to me but you know he can come along anyway right um when you actually look <laughs> like go into the definition a bit more you're like actually there's like a compliment in there somewhere because it's the implication is you know that the the ballast is necessary to provide stability and and balance it is completely essential really and you know hooper is you know potentially going to be that that person who is the you know the the one who keeps things who keeps things balanced who keeps things level because brody is you know not the expert um but he he is you know it's 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 his it's his party it's his charter as he says um and and quint does have the the fishing expertise and and the sort of sailing expertise as well um but but so does so does hooper and the the thing that hooper has that none of the others have is really this um expert knowledge about sharks so we've mentioned this idea i think in some previous episodes and and we'll certainly get into it as as the episodes go on but this idea of these these three being like the perfect um the perfect balance for each other you know they all add something that the other one doesn't have um and you take any one of them out of the picture and you know that's when things sort of start to start to fall apart and they're all needed but yeah just i guess just this like idea or acknowledgement from from quint that you know actually hooper could form you know a pretty essential part in uh in keeping things stable or you know or balanced or as they should be aboard the boat i just thought was quite interesting um i can say i'm reading too much into it probably am but i just thought (laughs) thought it was interesting to actually see like what that word meant uh without me just trying to come up with a, a rubbish definition of it yeah i think uh i don't think quint means it as a compliment uh, no. <laughs> to, to be sure um but that is that that is an interesting point about him you know being the anakin of the boat uh mm. and there's a there's a brewery here in america i think uh, to google <laughs> am i making this up no um oh yeah they're from san san, san diego jack white not bad jack white hang on 
Mr. Jack Whitey. <laughs> I'm sorry. Proceed. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's a there's a there's a uh, 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 a brewery in San Diego, um, California, called Ballast Point Brewery. Okay. And so in California, you'll see a lot if you go to like a uh, somewhere that serves a lot of craft brewers and stuff like that. You'll see a lot of Ballast Point. Um, stuff around you can even get it in some of the supermarkets out there too so um i'd heard of ballast i actually had to do a project in high school where we made these like rockets out of two liter soda bottles and uh we had to put ballast in them to Hmm. you know balance them out so I, i did kind of know what ballast was but i I always saw it as also kind of useless material. Like uh, I, I didn't look at it as the balancing, you know, the balancing point or whatever. Because when, when we, you know, put the uh, the ballast in our 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 soda bottle rockets, it was like Cheerios or popcorn kernels. Like it was like something that's very inexpensive that you can buy a lot of, mm. um, and that serve kind. I mean, obviously, like Cheerios and popcorn are food, but like. They, there's an abundance of them. There's just like, there's so much of them, you know, they, they, these are mass produced things that you can get anywhere. And like, it's not like the biggest deal in the world if you use some of them for this one little rocket that you're you're using, you know? Um, so it's, it is, you know, inessential in that, uh, in that point. So that's how I've always read that, that line of mm. he's, he's coming for ballast of like, he's going to be, he's not going to be dead weight, but he's not going to be of much use either. Yeah, I I just had a quick look at sort of like um, common materials uh, used as ballast, and it is things like like sand or gravel or like coarse stone. So like yes, it it serves a purpose on on the ship, but is you know on its own, you know maybe a, a fairly well, it's you know fairly common, usually fairly common materials or something that you know if it is. Yeah, I mean it's it it's there for a, for a purpose. This sort of like providing balance, but also like the material in itself is not particularly valuable. But I it's I just I I just found that line so interesting because I've I've always read it before as being you know uh, a, an insult to to Hooper, and I think in the context of the film that is what it is intended as. But obviously, us doing doing what we're doing and you know really drilling into the 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 nitty-gritty of this film as it as it were um finding that sort of extra meaning in it just added something to that line for me and uh quint and hooper's relationship the development of of that relationship is one of my favorite things about Mm. the film because you you slowly start to see that trust uh that trust come in and i mean one of my my favorite and most quoted lines in the film is is hooper drives the boat chief um so you know as the film progresses quint knows and understands that that hooper you know has a has a role has a purpose um isn't as you know you know useless and and dead weight as he perhaps thought he might be uh in the beginning so i think that that line even though it sort of seems you know pretty pretty throwaway and you know not really given too much thought to it before um 
I think that it it's it speaks to how Quint is feeling about Hooper right now, but it also speaks to how Quint feels about Hooper as the film goes on and how that that changes if if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a super good point. Um, you know, if when someone's writing a script, it's very purposeful, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then it, the things that end up in the movie are even more purposeful. Like those are what the, 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 the editing team and, you know, everyone involved who gets to sign off on an edit of a movie, that's what everyone is deeming as essential to the, the film right like these these mm. it, when when you see a, a film barring any studio interference uh th- you are getting what the, the the creator team behind it has deemed as like the easiest way to tell that story with like the you know arguably the least amount of information possible to still have a well-rounded product at the end of the mm. the day and um to have that in there like it just shows the sort of the the relationship between um this trio um yep so if you have ever done uh a group project or (laughs) so i took when i was in uh college i'm still in college i don't know why i said when i was in but when i was doing my general (laughs) education for uh college i took a um communication class that was group presentations and uh the, we went over this model of how a group um, kind of comes together and ends up, how does a group become a team is basically the point of the class. And so they, they broke it down into um, four stages and uh, it's the forming, storming, norming, and performing stage. And we are at the storming stage with them. So in forming, the group gets formed. In storming, the group starts kind of pushing each other's boundaries to see where they're at with each other. To kind of see, like, what what can I get away with this group of people? Particularly if they're unfamiliar with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it can lead to conflict. It can lead to friction. But it's a good way to establish, like, okay, where, where is the line with these other people in it? The norming stage of them kind of just figuring out how to work with all the different personalities involved and just kind of what, you know, what their shit is, basically. Like, just figuring (laughs) it out. And then performing is actually, like, doing the task at hand. Um, Mm. So I've been waiting to talk about the the forming, storming, norming, performing cycle because I knew it was going to be really important uh, (laughs) to the group, uh, the group dynamic. But we had to wait for Quint to show up. So, like... um, (laughs) uh now that he's here we can finally talk about it but it was one of the things where early on even in the podcast i was like "Ooh, that'll be that'll be good to talk about so we are clearly in the storming stage in Mm -hmm. in this scene where you know everyone's kind of figuring out like what's your line so i know what like is acceptable to accomplish the task at hand Mm. yeah we we stay in that territory for a a little while out on the on the orca as well so it'll be super interesting to um, to explore that that idea actually and i think that um yeah I, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it for this week <laughs> this week actually unless you had anything uh anything else i do not um yeah so sarah do you have anything that you want to plug 
Um, I do, yeah. So it is uh, almost at an end, but I am currently doing a, another podcast series uh, for Jumpcast uh, that is going through all of the Walt Disney animated classics. So uh, the day this episode goes out, I think our uh, Raya and the Last Dragon episode will either be out or imminent. Um, and then we have our kind of big finale episode um, and then that's it. And then then I only have one very uh, long uh, podcast project <laughs> to, to get through, which is which is uh, this one, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun doing that as well. I mean, two of my favorite things are Jaws and Disney. So having uh, a sort of a long running series talking about both of those things in in great detail has been has been a real joy. Um, so the old episodes of Jumpcast, they're not going to go anywhere. They will be available on uh, wherever you get your podcasts uh, to go back and listen to at any point. Um, I'll share this on my Twitter as well at some point, but I've been putting all of the episodes into like a playlist on Spotify. So if you had a spare uh, just under 100 hours and you wanted to listen mm-hmm. to all of the episodes, uh, then you can do that sort of one after the other uh, in a playlist. So if you have that much time on your hands, then honestly, uh, how for a start? And uh, two, I'm very jealous. But uh, yeah, if you do have 100 hours, why not spend it listening to that podcast? It's uh, It's pretty great. Hard agree. <laughs> I was on the Nerd Cannon podcast. Uh, I wasn't on the whole episode. I was just interviewed by Beth uh, over there um, for their Jaws episode, of course. Um, but the premise of that show is that they kind of take a look back at uh, past pop culture and see if it still stands the test of time. They're both uh, librarians, so they come at it from that angle, um, which I think is really interesting and uh, and pretty neat. So go check that out. Um you can find them on Twitter. That's that's how we got to know them. Um, at Nerd Cannon, C-A-N-O-N, one N in Canon. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a good time. I got to talk about Jaws, and and they focus it on um, kind of like whether or not certain pop culture artifacts are worth saving and and like passing on to the next generation, like whether or not they they hold up. Um, so one of the things that Beth and I ended up talking about was they recently did the movie Hook because they remembered liking Hook as kids, but they hadn't seen it since they were kids. And I was like, oh, hey, how does that hold up? Because I watched it as a teenager and I was like, oh, this is kind of a bad movie. And she was like, yeah, it's, we don't need to pass that one off. <laughs> yeah, it sucks, that film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Let it be known. <laughs> Hook is a bad film. Please do come for me because I, I will defend myself. <laughs> it's so long. It's so yeah. long. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> um a lot of man so much charm in that movie wasted too robin williams Mm -hmm. jamie lee curtis Mm -hmm. dustin hoffman such a good cast so good uh but yeah (laughs) or not jamie lee curtis julia roberts sorry yes yeah um yeah man everything about that movie should work but it's just so it's so plotting anyway this is not a hook (laughs) podcast uh it, yeah, so I was on Nerd Cannon. Go check that out. Um, Real Perspective, you can check out. Uh, things are in the works behind the scenes. I'll just say that. Um, but if you would like to follow us on social media, you can find us at Jaws for a Minute. Um, that is the official handle 
of the show on Twitter. And in there, you can find links to all our stuff, which I'll talk about uh, in a second. If you want to follow Sarah, you can follow her at Sarah Buttery, S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y. I am at MJSmith891. Um, if you wanted to email us with uh, any feedback or suggestions or um, shark-related projects or things you're working on, jawsforaminute at gmail.com. The DMs are also open on Twitter if you want to get in touch with us that way. Um, and speaking of the Jaws for a Minute Twitter, if you follow the link tree in there, you will find links to buy some merch on either TeePublic or Redbubble, your, um, whichever your merch purveyor of choice is. And uh, there are two designs that we have, and they're both great. Uh, they're both designed by um, Alex, who you can follow at Hexshadow on Twitter. Um, you can also find a link to our coffee page, which um, is just a way for you to support the show if you want to... Uh, to donate and show your appreciation. We appreciate you back. You will get a shout out on the show and you will also be entered to win uh, a piece of merch. Uh, once we hit a certain donation goal, we've set a new donation goal. So once we hit that, we'll do another raffle. And if you already donated in the past, you're already eligible for that unless you won the previous contest. So <laughs> um, yeah, you can do that. And you know, it's, it's a $3 minimum, I believe. And if you do that, you could potentially win a $20 shirt. So um do that. Uh, if you'd like to purchase our theme song, which was written and performed by uh, Kristen Falls, who I am married to, you can uh, find her on Instagram at Kristen Falls Music, and there's a link to her Bandcamp page and her link tree on her bio in on Instagram. And it's a uh, it's a like two-ish minute song, um, and you only get to hear like forty seconds of it each week. So, <laughs> uh, and it's a real good song. It's real good. <laughs> So uh, do that. Um, finally, if you want to just support the show for free and you absolutely, uh, we appreciate that just as much. Uh, please let us, uh, please give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, your podcatcher choice, Google, um, and then uh, subscribe, give us a rating, give us a review, share episodes with friends. Um, just, get, you know, help get the name of the show out there if you like it. Um, because we appreciate more people listening and we appreciate uh, the feedback we get every week. Um, and uh, we appreciate you guys listening and, and your time. So thank you for that. Um, we'll be back next week to talk about the next scene in this. But until then, it's Jaws O'Clock Somewhere.